right, Exodus chapter 23. We have some uh, reading to do, but Exodus chapter 23. You know, Exodus is such an, it's an awesome book, um, the Bible, because it has so much uh, display of, of God's power. Um, there's so many lessons that we can learn from that book. And so we're unpacking the book of Exodus, just doing a recap. So we're told, um, going through the book of Exodus, that the nation of Israel has been in bondage to the Egyptians uh, as slaves for over 400 years. Then God raised up Moses, and he used him to deliver them out of slavery. And so as they're leaving uh, Egypt, they're singing, they're celebrating, they're dancing as they're making their way to the promised land. And then they approach the Red Sea. And as soon as they approach the Red Sea, they turn around and realize that Pharaoh has changed his mind and he is pursuing them with the intent to kill them. And so God raised the sea through his supernatural power. He opens it up wide enough for them to walk through on dry land. And once they make it through, he closes that same sea on the Egyptians and wipes them out. And so finally, the Israelites are free. There seems to be nothing in the way of them reaching the promised land. Once again, they're singing, they're dancing, they're in high spirits, they're celebrating, they're making their way to the promised land, and then they realize there's another step that has to be taken. They have to walk through the wilderness. The wilderness is dry, there's no food, there's no water, there's no place of rest in the wilderness. They seem to be so close to reaching the place that God had promised, but they realize there's more that needs to be done on the way. There's many of us, when we look at that, there's many of us that find ourselves in similar situations. Many of us can relate to the Israelites. You know, there's many of us that have prayed. We have prayed and we prayed that God would do something in our own personal lives, our family, our workplace. And it seemed as if our prayers were about to be answered, but then we find out there's more to the process. We seem as if they were this close to getting and seeing what we prayed for, that, that, that wayward child or that, that rebellious child or that wayward spouse. And it seems like they're coming to church and they're growing in their faith and then they turn around and they walk backwards. Seems like we're in a dry place just like the Israelites. So you, you can imagine how discouraged they may have felt. You can imagine how angry these people may have felt, wondering if God is playing games, wondering if God is really for them, wondering if God is really there at all. For days they wandered in the wilderness, and after they were wandering, and while they were wandering, they began to grumble to Moses and Aaron because it seemed as if they had been let down again. You know, these were slaves they had been in slavery for over 400 years, which means their parents were slaves, their grandparents were slaves, their great-grandparents were slaves. So they grumbled and complained because they were tired of being let down. They were tired of being lied to. They were tired of promises being made that never came to pass. This was a nation of broken, abused, worn people, tired of going through cycles. And so they get out of Egypt and they find out that Egypt had not yet gotten out of them. And so anything that resembles a broken promise, anything that resembles their past, anything that would resemble 
Slavery leads them to panic. It gets them angry. It gets them anxious. It causes them to stress because they were in high spirits. They were singing. They were dancing. And they're making their way to the promised land. They realize there's one more step in the process. They have to walk through the wilderness. So they're discouraged. It's in moments like this where it seems like the promise is on a fish hook. It's in moments like this where it seems like taking a step of faith is a waste of time. It's in moments like this where it seems fitting to quit. It seems fitting to give up. It seems fitting to stop praying. It seems fitting to stop fasting. It seems fitting to stop believing God for what his word says to be true. But in these moments, the Bible says that God says, I am with you. And so that's the first point for this morning. God is with you. Exodus chapter 23, the first two verses, 20 and 21, God says to the nation of Israel, he says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to a place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him, talking about the angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. There's something interesting about this angel. God tells his people to obey the voice of this angel and do not rebel against him. And then God says something extremely interesting. He says this angel has the ability to pardon or not pardon transgressions. Something else to point out about this angel, God says, my name is in him. You know, the Bible tells us about several angels all throughout scripture, but and it only names two. Michael, the archangel of war, whose name means there is none like God. And then Gabriel, whose name means God is my strength, the messenger angel. And so this tells us that angels are giving names that display God's attributes. The Bible says that my name is in him. So angels are given names that display God's attributes, but no angel actually has God's name. So who else in existence could have that much authority and that much equality with God that he can have his name? So what we are seeing in this passage is when God is talking about sending his angel with them and giving him his name, we are seeing the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus lead the Israelites through the wilderness, what many theologians will call a Christophany when Jesus appears on the earth in the Old Testament. So when Jesus appeared in the Old Testament, there's several times where he does this, he appears with several distinct roles or titles of leadership. I'm gonna give you a few examples. Several decades after this, Joshua takes over the leadership role of the children of Israel and he's preparing to invade the city of Jericho. And later that night, Joshua is taking a look at the land, scoping out the land from a distance. And while he's looking, he turns around and he sees a man standing behind him with his sword drawn. And Joshua asked the man this question, Joshua chapter five, verse 14, are you for us? or for our enemies. And the man just says, no. Now, us listening to this in our modern Western minds, we're pretty confused because Joshua gave him two options. You know, if I ask you, do you want chicken or fish? And you just say no, or yes, I don't really know what to do with that. And so it sounds very confusing reading this, but when you take the time to unpack it, you realize that the, the man is saying when he says no, he's not looking to join Joshua in battle. He's saying, I came to run the joint. I came to take over. I came to lead you. He says no, 
but as the commander or the commander in chief of the army of the Lord, I have now come. When you look at the United States, the commander in chief is the president. So the commander in chief of the army of the Lord is not Michael, though he's the archangel, it's Jesus. So centuries later, we see, or decades later, we see Jesus appearing to Joshua in the Old Testament. Centuries after this, the nation of Israel is taken captive by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. He builds a golden image and demands that everyone in the kingdom bows before this image. And whoever refuses to bow down will be thrown into the fiery furnace. So when the image is built, everyone in the kingdom, they come and they bow down as they're commanded, except three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young men from the nation of Israel. They refuse to bow before anyone who is not the true and living God. The king confronted them after they refused to bow. He gave them one more chance to bow or they would be thrown in the fire. Excuse me. But even knowing the consequence, they refused to bow. And so their, incur- their courage infuriated the king so much that he turned the furnace up seven times hotter than it was and threw them in the furnace to die. So I'm sure by now the king felt relieved because he knows that anyone who challenged his authority is now out the picture. But right before he's ready to move on with his life, Bible says he's astonished. I believe he was confused. And he turned to his counselors and he said, come here, I need y'all to see something. I promise you, I, I thought we threw three men in the furnace. And he said, is that true? Did we throw three men in the furnace? They say, yeah, it's true. But then he says, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar, he came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't describe the fourth man fully in the furnace because he didn't really know the God of Israel, but all he knew was that this fourth man in the furnace was not of this world and had the authority of a God. So what Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize is that he himself laid eyes on the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. So when we look back at this morning's passage, God is sending his angel to lead and guide his people through hard times. Why did I take all this time to say all that? Why did I have to go through all these examples? Because sometimes we're like Israel. Sometimes we go through things and it feels like we're going through things all alone. Sometimes it seems as if our minds are being played with. Sometimes it seems as if we're getting so close, but yet so far. Sometimes we get worn and weary and well-doing. But God wants us to know that Jesus is with us. His name is Emmanuel. That means God is with us. Is is present tense. It does not mean God was with us or he will be with us, but God is with us. And the reason why I wanted you to see all of these Christophanies or Jesus' appearance on earth is because God has always been with us. God has never just started or he's never going to start, but he has always been here and he's always been here for us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have a need to fear because our shepherd is with us. His rod and his staff comforts us. Jesus is with us. God promised this to the nation of Israel to be with them. 
This angel, he would guide them. He would lead them to the place that was prepared for them. And so the nation is commanded to follow him. And as we move forward in this reading, we'll see that God is not only telling the people to follow this angel physically, but even follow him through their obedience to his will. Which brings me to the next point. God demands a holy lifestyle. God demands a holy lifestyle. I'll read Exodus chapter 23, verse 24. It says, after the angel brings you, this is God speaking, after the angel brings you into the land, you shall not bow to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars. I want to skip to verse 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell or they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God is constantly warning them not to worship other gods of the nations around them. And as you read in the Old Testament, you'll see that that's a besetting sin. That is a major problem, a major temptation that the Israelites face. And we'll, we'll go over that more as we continue this series. But notice that God tells them that they cannot compromise. He says, make no covenants with them. Utterly overthrow them. Break their pillars. Idolatry was a major problem for them. What, what is idolatry? Idolatry is a fleshly desire for God to share his glory with his creation. That's what it is. It is a fleshly desire for God to share his glory with his own creation. God does not share his glory. The command here is to be totally distinct from idolatry of other nations around them. So as Christians, God calls us to be holy, to be set apart from the world so we cannot compromise with the idolatrous values or beliefs or the desires and the practices of the world around us. This is what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, what does that mean? This, I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Christians should live in hiding from, to avoid unbelievers. Because at the end of the day, we still need to shop for groceries, right? We still need to run errands. We still need stuff for the house. We still got to get the car fixed. And so there are things that we have to do on a regular basis that involved being engaged with the world. But we should see every interaction that we have with the world to display the love of Jesus by loving the people in this world by in seeking to advance the kingdom of God in the midst of confusing times. So a holy lifestyle, it's not the refusal to love the people of this world, but it's a refusal to compromise with them. So we don't believe the lies of the world. We don't believe the practices and the things that the world promotes. We refuse to worship the false gods of materialism and fame and fortune and power, temporary things that this world has to offer. But we seek, as Christians, we should seek to live like the true and living God alone. So my question to you, when you look at your life, what areas in your life do you find yourself being tempted to compromise with the world? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it sexual sin? Is it greed? 
God is warning the nation of Israel in this passage, make no compromise with the world and worship God alone. So, so far, based on this passage, we've covered God's presence. We've covered God's demand for holiness. And then my next point is recognizing that God is all powerful. God is all powerful. Exodus chapter 23, again, verses 27 through 28. God continues by saying, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Parasites. I'm just seeing if y'all is paying attention. And the Hittites before, from before you. So look, compared to all the kingdoms and the nations, Israel was considered small. Yet, they're going to be the most powerful nation in the world. They're going to conquer cities and defeat armies that seem to be greater than them in size. And it's not because of anything they've done. It's not because of any of their military experience or might, but it's because the God of the universe will fight for them. The God of the universe, no matter what you face, the God of the universe will fight for you. So the one way that God says he's going to display his power is by sending hornets. Now, I've never been stung by a hornet, so I don't know what that pain feels like, and I pray to God it remains that way. But there's something about hornets that I want to point out. Hornets are not aggressive insects, believe it or not. They're not aggressive insects. They're actually believed to be quite shy and peaceful. Hornets, they mind their business, and they focus on their nest. The only way that a hornet will attack is if they're provoked, they feel threatened, or they feel the need to defend. So this behavior in Exodus chapter 23 is very, very unusual for hornets. Hornets aren't just going to get up and start invading stuff. That's just not in their nature. They just don't do stuff like that because they're very peaceful. So what God is saying is that his will is going to be so clear and his love for his people is going to be so strong that even peaceful creatures will feel the need to defend them. Even peaceful creatures will see the need to say, I need to step up and I need to carry out God's will for his people. That's the power of a holy God. Peaceful creatures are going to get in defense mode and stand up for the nation of Israel. So God would display his power by driving out their enemies before them. And then he continues in verse 29 and 30. He says, I will not drive them out. He says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. He says, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Verse 30 says, little by little. I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. God says little by little. So we're not only seeing God's power displayed, but we're also seeing God's power displayed in his timing. Now, that's the hard part. We love to hear God's power displayed, but it's about something about that timing that starts to get under our skin. God's timing it's his perfect time. Everything that God said is going to happen. 
but it's going to happen in his timing. So because if they go into the land too fast, the Bible says that they wouldn't be able to handle it. They would lose control over it. The beast would multiply against them. The land would become desolate. God's going to fight for his people. He's going to display his power, but he's going to do it in his timing. Many of us, again, we, we can relate to this. We can relate to the people of Israel because we know what God said. We read God's word. We're believing that God can do certain things. God can save certain people that we've been praying for. God can draw certain people closer to him. God can mature people in their faith, but it's in his timing. That's the part that we get anxious about. We try to shove the Bible down their throat. We try to demand that they go to church with us every week because they just have to be saved right now. But it's in God's timing. They have to grow in their faith right now. It's in God's timing. They have to forgive somebody right now. It's in God's timing. It's in God's timing. And so I encourage you. I I want you to focus on something. I want you, I want to encourage you to stop waiting for God and start waiting on God. Now, 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 what's the difference? Because I've seen that in scripture. Both texts, both words, for and on, especially in the ESV, they point to one thing, serving. But I love how the King James Version focuses on, on or up on, and I'm gonna go further in that. See, when you wait for the Lord, you're stagnant. When you wait on him, you serve. You go to a restaurant. You go to a restaurant. A waiter, because that, that's their job, they wait. They're, a waiter comes to you, and they say, what do you want to drink? You give them your drinks. They bring your drinks. They say, are you ready to order? If you're not ready to order, do they just stand over you? No, the first thing they do is they go serve, and they do the work until their timing is ready. Till your timing is ready. A waiter serves. They go around, they take care of business in the back. They go to other tables, they wash and they clean whatever needs to be done because it's not their time yet. So in the meantime, I'm going to serve. That's what a waiter does. A waiter who waits for the customer, they're blind to the other work that needs to be done around them. So a waiter who waits on the customer, they go around again, they serve. And many of us are waiting for certain prayers to be answered and we're getting restless and we're getting weary. My question to you again is, are you waiting on God or waiting for God? And while you're waiting on God, Coastal is a prime example because Coastal is, we're believing God for, to become a 10 campus church. That, that's what we're believing God for. But that doesn't mean we're going to shut down service or shut down small group until we reach that goal. That doesn't mean that we're going to shut down missions trips until we see it happen. But little by little, we're seeing God bring increase. We wait on God by attending corporate worship and going to small group. We wait on God by serving in a ministry and a mission, by connecting, by growing, by serving. And then God brings the multiplication. That word multiply, that's what God is doing. That's the manifestation of God's power by him using us to connect, grow, and serve. Now we're going to watch God multiply. We wait on God by serving. 
God is telling us in his word that he will do what he said, but it's in his timing. We must rest in his promise. That's what waiting on the Lord does. We're resting our minds, our hearts. I love what the King James Version says. Now I'm actually going to read Isaiah 40 verse 13. They that wait up on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall run or walk and not faint. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Notice how both passages, waiting on the Lord results in an increase of strength. One of the reasons why my daughter's strength is constantly renewed besides the fact that she's a toddler with no job or bills to pay. One of the reasons, can I get an amen? Anybody understand what I'm saying? One of the reasons why her strength is constantly renewed, we go on walks a lot. When she gets weary, she turns around, she lifts her hands up. That's the posture of worship. She lifts her hands up and says, I need you. I can't do this by myself. I pick her up. Now all her strength is on me. Everything that she needs is on me now. She is relying completely on me to get her to where she needs to go, but it's in my timing. Right? So it's all about when I feel like getting there. But, 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 but she has to wait. Now she's waiting on me. Now while she's resting in who I am as her father, she is being strengthened. So that way, as soon as I put her down, she goes on 10 immediately because she has been resting in who I am. She's not worried about how she's going to get there. She's not worried about what she needs. She knows that her father has her in his arms. And so because I have her, she has nothing to worry about. She's resting in who I am, so her strength is being renewed. And by the time I sit her down, she's ready to go again. That's what waiting up on the Lord looks like. It's saying, Father, I'm yours. I'm going to take everything that's on my shoulders, and I'm giving that to you. And I'm going to rest in who you are, and I'm going to let you carry me. So but when, it's, when it's my time to go again, my strength is renewed. We get weary. It's hard out here, man. It's hard out here. And this is what the Israelites are facing. They're getting weary. While they're facing difficulties reaching the promised land, they would go in the battle, but every battle was used to stretch their faith. Every battle was used to teach them to learn how to depend on who God is. And so waiting on the Lord and serving gives us the opportunity for our faith to be stretched, but it also gives us the opportunity to rest in who God is as a faithful God. Which brings me to the next point. God desires covenant. God desires covenant. That word covenant, it's a blood bond. It's a blood bond. It's, it's meaning that um, it binds two parties together in a relationship of a life and death situation, life and death seriousness. A covenant in scripture is usually made by God to his people, which means that it's on his terms, right? Various covenants all throughout the scripture promises that God, on God's part, he calls for obedience. He calls for faithfulness. That's why I mentioned that he's a faithful God earlier. Faithfulness, not just on his part, because he's going to do what he said, 
But he's calling for that from us. And when we submit to him, he talks about the blessing and the curses that we will bring for keeping or breaking the terms of the covenant. So in Exodus chapter 23, God is entering into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, often referred to as the Mosaic or the Old Covenant. That's what that word testament comes from. When we see the word testament, we're seeing old covenant. So when, by the time we get to the New Testament, we're seeing the new covenant. So in Exodus chapter 23, God is entering into a covenant with the nation of Israel. And now in chapter 24, the covenant is being confirmed. So there's three points I want to make regarding this covenant to give us some more understanding. So first we see chapter 24, and I'm going to read it shortly, that vows are being offered. Vows are being offered. So that's the first thing that we see, chapter 24, for this covenant. Exodus chapter 24, I'm going to read the first few verses. Then he said to Moses, God says this to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came up or came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord that has been spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrifice or sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. After the law is given, Moses, he reads the word of the covenant to the people. And in verse 3 and 7, the nation vows to obey the Lord's commands. They say all the words of the Lord that he's spoken, we will do, we will obey. They make this promise of faithfulness. So not only does this vow, when I look at this, the vow doesn't just catch my attention, but I listen to the tone. I listen to the way they say, you know, the Bible, when you read scripture, there's a tone and there's a, there's a tense to it. You know, you got to always pay attention. To that. I'm going to give you an example. Um, when I was a child, I would talk to my mom. I'd say, hey, mom, 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 mom. Mom, mommy, mom, 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 can I do this? Mom, can I, can I, can? she was like, ask me again. <laughs> now that is not her telling me to ask her again, because I don't think that's a good idea. You got to know the tone and the tense when you read scripture. And I just find it very interesting. And I'm going to come back to this later and how they say all that the Lord says, we will obey. I'm going to come back to that later. I just want you to pay attention to that and put a marker right there. So there were many of them that uh, they said all that the Lord, you know, I'm going I'm to I'm talk about that now. All that the Lord has commanded, we will obey. I want you to pay attention to this because the way they say it, 
They say it like they had what it took to do this. Oh, we got this. We, we got this, Moses. Everything that God told us to do, we're going to do it to the T. We got this. They believe that they had what it took. And the funny thing is, that's the same way we are today. That's the same way we are. I've heard people say it's easy to live holy. We got this. It's easy to do this. All you got to do is follow this and that and this and that. It's easy. This is the mindset of, of the children of Israel. We can do this. It's easy. That's how we are today. But, but the reason why we can say that is because many of us don't know the standard of holiness that God requires. It's, it's, not, it's not a hit and miss standard. It's perfection. God is calling for perfect holiness, perfect obedience. He's calling for a lifestyle that is completely sinless. And so that's something that cannot be done in our own strength. And you're going to see that these same people that said they got this are the same people that kept rebelling years later, actually days later, because they thought that they could do this without understanding what they were declaring. They did not understand the standard that God had set. We can't do this in our own strength. They couldn't even keep their vow, but they entered into a covenant making this vow of faithful obedience. But the next point that's fascinating to me, blood is sprinkled. So vows are made, blood is sprinkled. Blood is sprinkled. Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you is in accordance with all these words. So back in verse 6, Moses slaughtered the animals for the sacrifice. He threw the blood on the altar. But then in verse 8, he takes the same blood of the covenant and he throws it on the people. That's disgusting. Why would he do something like that? Remember what we said earlier. A covenant, it's a blood bond. It's a blood and bond. It's, it is a life or death seriousness. So in Israelite culture, animals were slaughtered. And when they were slaughtered, it was to symbolize what would happen if one party was unfaithful to the covenant. So something else to point out about this moment of worship in verse 2, Moses, Moses, along with the elders, he went to worship. But then in verse 2, it says God called him to come alone, left everybody afar. So this means God calls Moses to come to him. This means that Moses is now serving as a mediator. He serves as a mediator between God and man. So when Moses stands before the presence of God, he represents the people. When he stands before the people, he represents God. Why is that important? Because when Moses throws the blood on the altar and he sprinkles it on the people, it was a symbol, it was to symbolize that if one side was unfaithful, he was declaring from God to the people the penalty of unfaithfulness was death. So God was using him to speak to the people by sprinkling blood because he was the mediator. So this story, you actually see this is in reference, this is a reference in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm a, you don't have to turn it, I'm going to just go ahead and read it. Turn at verse 19. 
It says, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself on all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood of not, as, not of his own. For then he would, have, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for at all the ends of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God wanted this blood sprinkled on the altar and on the people to teach them that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or there is no forgiveness of sin. But the blood of the animals could never take away sin. It could never take away sin. The sacrifice, it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice Jesus Christ. This is what Hebrews 9 is telling us, that Jesus is the better sacrifice than these. We were made in the image of a holy and a righteous God, but we rebelled against God seeking to live life on our own terms, and our rebellion brought sin into the world, putting us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But instead of sending his wrath, God the Father sent his angel. He sent the mediator. He sent his son, Jesus, God the Son, came to this earth and lived a completely sinless life. Unlike the children of Israel who said, we got this, Jesus came in and actually lived out what they declared sinlessly and perfectly. All of us, we tried this and we failed. We failed trying to live up to the standard of holiness that God requires. All of us have fallen short. All of us have messed up. All of us do and say things we shouldn't. All of us find ourselves in situations that we have no business engaging in. All of us have sinned. But Jesus is the covenant keeper. He perfectly obeyed and submitted the Father's will to a T. His life was so sinless that he became the sacrifice. So he is not only the priest, he is not only the mediator, but the priest and the mediator laid himself on the altar. Instead of finding an animal, he laid himself down on the altar. Jesus sacrificed his life and he faced the penalty of the father by dying on the cross for our sin. They ripped his body apart. Just like they slaughtered the animal, they shredded Jesus and his blood was shed. His blood was shed on the cross and blood, you know, is pumped from the heart. It's pumped from the heart. When your heart is contaminated, so is your blood. 
when your heart is pure, so is your blood. But because Jesus' life was so sinless, his blood was innocent. And so he died on the cross, shedding his innocent blood for those who are guilty, receiving the wrath of the Father. He was buried, and three days later, he bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. So when you surrender your life to Jesus and receive him as Lord of your life, the innocent blood that was shed from him now covers you and you are saved from the penalty of sin. So that's the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So the last point that I want to make, we see that vows are made. This is all under God's covenant. God desires covenant. There's three points that help us unpack that. Vows were made, blood was shed, and then lastly, there was a feast. A feast was celebrated. A celebration feast. There was a feast celebrated. Exodus, and I got a lot of reading to do with this one. Exodus chapter 24, starting at verse 9. And this is how I'm going to close this out. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God. They ate and they drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose up with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And the seventh day, he called Moses out the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the vows were made, the blood had been shed. The blood covered the people and the altar. The covenant had been made between God and man. Now after the blood is shed, they see God. It was through the blood covenant that they had access to God in this way. Their relationship just went to a whole new level. It was only through the shed blood that they could see God in this way. They saw God, but notice how they described what they saw. They described the floor. When they saw God, they, they only could describe the floor. This sounds like a contradiction because when you read throughout scripture, the Bible says just a few chapters later, Moses asked God, I want to see you. I want to see all of you. Show me everything. And God says, that's not really a good idea. You will die if I show you me. For no man can see God and live. So most people argue with this and say, well, they may have had a vision. But I believe that God allowed them to see as much as they could take. 
Because when you read the description, they can't make it past his feet. All they could see was the floor that was under his feet because no man could look at a holy God and live. So I believe that they revealed that he saw, they saw the pavement. It was made of sapphire. But why is this so important? Because the blood of that sacrifice gave them access to the throne. So now we see the same as with Christ. Through the shed blood and the finished work of Christ, now we have access to the throne of grace. The Bible tells us in Revelation that those who surrender to the Lord Jesus as Lord of their lives, they will have the same encounter as Moses. And since we are in covenant with God through the finished work of Christ, when this life is over, we will see the almighty God. But the difference between our encounter with God and Moses' encounter is when we see God, we will see him face to face. The Bible says that after they saw the Lord, they ate and they drank. Now, again, that's a weird thing to do, you know. Wow, God, who wants lunch? <laughs> that's a weird, it's it just, it doesn't really sound, it doesn't sound right. They just saw the almighty God, now they're trying to figure out what's for lunch. But during this time of feasting, it, feasting was to symbolize that the covenant was sealed. The covenant was sealed. So they saw the Lord and they celebrated in his presence by fellowshipping with one another. The covenant was sealed. So one great day, one great day, those who surrender to Jesus of Lord, as Lord, they will see God face to face and we will all feast together once we see him. We will all feast together, the saints of all the ages will gather at one big giant table and will feast with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings forever because the covenant has been sealed. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm done, so this is what I want to do. We covered a lot this morning. There, there, there's some people that may be in this room who are like the Israelites in chapter 23. You've been trying to hold on by faith but it seems like the closer you get to an answer prayer, the harder life seems to get. You've been trying to wait on God, but it seems as if he's not even listening. You may have reached the point where you're just sick and tired of it. There, there, there may be someone in this room who's been struggling to live out what they believe and live out what they profess because you go to church and you get this boost of spiritual energy and then Monday comes and you go to work and everybody around you is living a life that's contrary to what you profess and that temptation is just weighing on your shoulders and you're just bombarded with temptation and the sin of this world and you're weary and you're trying so hard but you're tired. There may be someone in this room who's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and just realized that you're just not saved. You realize you heard about the blood being shed and you heard about those who surrender to Christ and you realize I'm not, I'm not one of them. I want you to take the time to come to this altar. We're gonna have leaders that are gonna come and pray for you. They wanna encourage you and they want you to know that the God of the universe hears and sees you that Jesus loves you and he died for your sins and he rose again so you would have access to the Father and you would have the guarantee that you will live eternally once this life is over. We're gonna have leaders that are gonna come. I'm gonna pray. The worship team is gonna come and they're gonna sing. I want you, while they're singing, feel free to come up and be prayed for, be encouraged. Because times are rough. 
It's hard living in this world. It's hard living in these days and times. We need to be encouraged. And we need to know that God loves us. God sees us. Jesus, through the finished work, through his finished work, revealed and displayed the Father's love for you. So I'm going to pray, and I want you to make your way to this altar if you feel the Lord putting that on your heart. Leaders are going to come down. Father, thank you. Because you are a God of love. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of grace. You are a holy God with a standard that we just cannot reach because of our sin nature. But we thank you that though we could not reach that standard, you sent Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for your sinless life. We thank you for your sacrificial death. We thank you for being the mediator, the priest, and the sacrifice who laid down his life, giving us the hope of eternal life. We pray that everything that was said and taught would sit in the hearts of those, everyone who heard and would marinate so that as they leave this place, it would be a boost of spiritual energy so that they would have a burning desire to live for Jesus Christ. We thank you for everything that was said and done. We pray that you would be glorified in this, everything that was said and done. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things.